Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor here at BioCentury, and I'm joined by my colleagues. Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Usden, Washington Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. On today's pod, navigating dose optimization requirements as a small biotech. New challenges and opportunities for FDA and regulated industry, and a house bill that seeks to ban qualies. What's at stake? But first, this week's BioCentury podcast is brought to you by our 23rd Bioequity Europe Conference. It's scheduled for May 14th through 16th in Dublin. This year's theme, how to develop a new playbook for biotech success in Europe. Register by this Friday to take advantage of our early bird rate. Learn more at bioequityeurope.com. All right. FDA's Project Optimus and newly issued dose optimization guidance is sure to benefit patients, but it's also sure to create some major challenges for smaller biotech. Lauren is here to tell us all about it. First of all, Lauren, what is Project Optimus? So this is all about moving away from the traditionally used maximum tolerated dose model for dose finding phase one studies uh, in cancer. So in the MTD model, it's all about picking a starting dose, testing it in a small cohort of patients, usually three, and then continuing to increase the dose in those small cohorts until you reach the maximum tolerated dose. And all of that's based on the assumption that efficacy increases pretty linearly, linearly with dose, which was the case for cytotoxic chemotherapies, but that's usually not true for newer targeted therapies and immunotherapies in development. In those cases, you know, you're reaching a sufficient target engagement to see efficacy plateau before, you know, you're nearing that maximum tolerated dose. So the effect on patients has been they're getting potentially getting excess toxicities without any added efficacy benefit. So Project Optimus is, and this new guidance that is, is related and stems directly from that is directing companies to do dose optimization studies instead of the maximum tolerated dose studies, which involve more thorough dose response and exposure response analyses to, to optimize for the safety and efficacy in, in these early dose finding studies. Lauren, first of all, I think it's very interesting, and I could argue a little bit late, really, because, you know, the, the reason for this difference is that it's targeted therapies versus the old chemotherapeutics. So with the old chemotherapeutics, they don't follow traditional receptor, you know, agonist interactions in those dynamics. They're things like cytoskeletal proteins and, and things that sort of cause global toxicities. Now, targeted therapies aren't new. And so this seems to be something that in a way could have been brewing for a while. And, you know, why is it that now FDA is seeing this need to create dose optimization and sort of basically following sigmoid curves, <laughs> um, thinking about that? Why is it happening now? Well, this is just the way that things were done, I think. And, you know, the result, even when you're, you're focusing on maximum tolerated dose is a therapy that's safe and effective moving through the clinic. You know, it may not be the safest therapy, but 
but you're still meeting FDA's criteria if you're going through all the steps. But this was sort of brought on, I think, from the PI3 kinase issue that developed last year, where FDA started to notice an overall survival detriment in um, some post-market and pre-market studies for, for the PI3 kinase inhibitor class, where patients were actually doing worse on, you know, surviving for a shorter period of time if, if they were treated with these therapies. And these reached the market based on earlier endpoints, progression-free survival. And it was expected that this wasn't an efficacy issue that was leading to worse survival. It was it was safety issue, accumulating safety over time. So th that's what sort of stimulated this now, I think. And I, I think right. the other thing that this really points out is that there's a tremendous lack of evidence collection post-market. And it isn't happening. FDA doesn't have the tools to make it happen. And it doesn't have the confidence that it's going to happen. You could envision a world in which FDA would say, especially for really important new therapies for cancer, that they would get them onto the market with whatever dose is safe and effective, safe and effective enough to, to approve it. If they have the confidence that then it's going to, there, there's going to be a lot of evidence that's going to be collected post-market as we done quickly. And there's a way to feed that information back into the system so you could quickly optimize the dose once you see how it's used in the real world, how it's used with other kinds of treatments and people who wouldn't have even qualified for the trials and so on. But the problem is, is that that simply doesn't happen. It doesn't have the ability to mandate it. So I think that this is a, you know, kind of a second best solution that's derived from this bigger problem of a lack of evidence collection post-market. So Lauren, this is, relates to cancer therapies, right? But what about other therapeutic areas? Are they already doing this? Because I would have thought most of those follow traditional pharmacology, as I pointed out, you know, across the board and have done historically. Yeah, so I, I've heard that this is allowing companies to do maximum tolerated dose studies was very specific to cancer. You know, cancer is kind of behind the times on, on finding the best dose for patients up front, which... I think Steve's point is good about needing better tracking of post-market safety and efficacy. But I think it's also finding the right dose at the beginning certainly has benefits too. Well, it's it's also an issue that cancer is privileged in a way because people are willing to tolerate adverse effects of cancer drugs that they simply wouldn't tolerate for drugs that treat less dire conditions. Right. That's a, a very true point. And I, I just want to ask you, Lauren, what this sort of means for small companies at a practical level, because it sounds like they're going to have to do, you know, much more intensive early stage trials to get the right dose. How are they thinking about this? So I've actually heard both sides of the argument from small companies. Uh, some of the executives that I spoke with talked about the burden, the financial burden, the increased time that, that this will require, because the expectation is that you're going to need larger phase one studies. This is particularly a problem for the companies that have done their phase one studies based on the older models. And, and now we've seen examples of these companies having to backtrack or having to do sort of a dose randomization in phase two or phase three to, to make sure that they've come to the right dose in, in the models that they've used initially. But surprisingly, I also heard from a couple companies who appreciate the, you know, the benefit that this can have long term. Um, if you find the most effective, safest dose at the beginning, you know, 
the therapy may perform better in the clinic later or on the market later. The early adopters of dose optimization saw this as a, a differentiation strategy or a part of their differentiation strategy. Adagene, for example, they're in the CTLA-4 space. You know, this was the original checkpoint, undoubted efficacy, but also a lot of toxicity. So if you're able to find a dose of a next generation anti-CTLA-4 MAB that has you know, much better safety profile, then, then that can increase the chances of doing well later. And it can also make this therapy more attractive for partners because having a lot of that safety data is a big benefit for combination studies later. All right, let's stay with FDA and its priorities. Now that the agency is starting to implement PDUFA 7 and the mandates from the omnibus spending bill, passed at the 11th hour late last year. The agency is facing questions about how best to retool itself to meet the most pressing challenges ahead and what it should retain from its work during the pandemic. Obviously, it adopted some new ways of working that um, perhaps should carry over into the uh, work that lies ahead. One thing uh, I'd like to address quickly that shot up to the top of the agency's to-do list is addressing the problem that minority racial and ethnic groups are underrepresented in clinical trials. This became very, very obvious during the pandemic. It was a theme at last month's CIRCE meeting. That's the UCSF Stanford CIRCE, Center for Excellence in Regulatory Science. Simone, is something you've been following, and you've written a couple of stories now about some pretty important things that came out of that meeting last month around the time of the J.P. Morgan conference. Tell us a bit about what FDA is prioritizing with diversity in clinical trials, Simone. Right. So I want to emphasize that this has obviously been brewing, as you say, and we've talked a lot about the cancer division, the Oncology Center for Excellence, requiring trials that represent the U.S. population. This is really a lot broader than that specific issue, although it's obviously related. So what FDA has required is now, in guidance, is now law. Representative Anna Eshoo pushed the DEPICT Act, which got incorporated into the omnibus spending bill. And what it does is it basically codifies in law that sponsors have to submit a diversity action plan for phase three or pivotal trials. The truth is, you know, this is important. There's quite a lot of outs here, right? It's only phase three, it's only pivotal, there's no post-market requirement, and there are certainly lots of ways that sponsors can go to FDA and ask for exemption. But I think it is important in that the Act also has workshops and it starts to put on the agenda how sponsors should be assessing what kind of target they want. It's really about the burden of disease, not about representation in the population. And, you know, this is, this is going to be an ongoing theme. I think it is really important to say that Patricia Cavazzoni, who is the director of FDA Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, really wants sponsors to be thinking about this before they get to the clinic. So even though the law talks about phase three and pivotal trials, FDA is encouraging companies to be thinking about 
creating diverse clinical trials from the very beginning. I think I want to pivot to another topic that came up at the Cersei meeting, and it sort of dovetails with something that I know that Steve is going to talk about. And in this conversation, in this panel, it was an FDA chief's panel, the question really came up about, you know, FDA did great work during the pandemic. That amount of work is just not sustainable. So what should FDA's priorities be? And Janet Woodcock sort of talked about the idea that they're thinking about its priorities at the same time as incorporating PDUFA 7's demands on them or requirements. Um, and two really interesting things came up in my mind. One is Mark McClellan, who was previously FDA commissioner, but he was also the head of CMS. And I think that's really clear in his outlook because he really wants FDA to think go beyond thinking about individual products to thinking about population health. That's its mandate. And he says, I think we're increasingly losing sight of the end goal here, which is effective use of therapies to have an impact on population health. So he wants FDA to do more on evidence generation that relates to how a product is going to get taken up or used in the population, not just on safety and efficacy. So all these things seem to be going one direction, which is trying to get companies to generate more evidence and better evidence about their drugs. And again, it's the same thing that we were talking about earlier. I think it's this tension between how much of that should they and do they need to do before a drug gets onto the market and how much of it is after. It sounds to me like a part of what Mark McClellan is talking about there, again, is this lack of confidence that we have a system for obtaining good evidence about how drugs perform after they've been approved. So that's correct. Now, you're right. And there is this ongoing tension. I mean, this, by the way, also relates to the disparities points that I was making earlier, because what they want for more representation is also more trials in community hospitals. That would also encompass more of the population and reflect more how it's going to work in the overall population. There's a tension between that and the amount of data that you generate. Everybody talks a lot about digital technologies and decentralized trials. The idea there is that you would be able to generate more data, digital sort of inputs and so on that can support this kind of evidence. Well, basically safety, efficacy, and I suppose uptake and usage. One point, Steve, that I think could be counter to what you're saying, because what McClellan is arguing for is evidence that can support going straight to an alternative treatment, at least in certain segments of the population, so not necessarily needing to go through all of these lines of treatment that aren't going to work in someone and being able to go directly to the innovative therapy. And so I think if you had evidence to support that, you could argue that that's a worthwhile investment for those companies. Yeah, if you have the confidence that payers are going to accept that data and act on it. I think that there's a strong belief and there's evidence to support it that a lot of the requirements for prior authorization and for step therapy for patients to be failed by certain drugs before they can get other drugs has got more to do with payers trying to limit their exposure to expensive therapies than to trying to figure out what's really the best thing for the patients. 
Right. You're, you're spot on. And of course, that is one of the things that people want to see fixed as well. <laughs> so yes, they'd like payers to be part of this solution. And the realities may not be consistent with that right now. Moving just to a second thing, which I think dovetails with some of the stuff you're going to talk about. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, he thought that FDA should be doing work that isn't so focused on specific disease areas, but really supporting platforms that are actually really innovative and go across lots of indications. Somebody pointed out to him that cell and gene therapies are about to get this huge influx of money, and they are platforms. And what he said about that is, yeah, that's true, but that's only because industry went there first. And so because there's a lot of industry in there, FDA now has the money and the resources to go into creating better manufacturing requirements or whatever they're going to do. But what he thinks that FDA should be doing is actually going into platforms where few people are operating. And he thinks that FDA would be uniquely able to sort of figure out what are the truly disruptive or what it thinks of as disruptive platforms where there isn't a lot of investment capital already. I think that the thing that I would add to that would be that in addition to a large increase in funding for cell and gene therapies in the user fee reauthorization bill, in the omnibus, there's something that was created. There's a uh, platform technologies designation program that was included. It was included as part of a pandemic preparedness or pandemic response um, legislation. But people who I've spoken with say that they think that it could have a much broader application. I'm, I'm working on a story on it now. It'll be out hopefully in a day or two. The idea of this is to create a predictable pathway for drug manufacturers to be able to leverage and reuse technologies for multiple products and for them to be able to get a, a kind of a stamp of approval from FDA saying that, that a technology qualifies as a, as a platform technology and they'll be able to get this benefit from it. One of the things that that'll do is it'll create some transparency around which technologies and companies FDA has confidence in that there's something that can be reused again, sort of like Lego blocks. So you'll be able to have a part of your application that gets just used over and over again for new products and you don't have to prove it to FDA every time. I think that that's going to be something that's that potentially could have enormous implications and it'll have implications far beyond pandemic preparedness and countermeasures for emerging infectious diseases. Steve, does that relate to what we've seen with vectors and gene therapy? It certainly potentially could. In the legislation, it requires that FDA come up with draft guidance by the end of this year, which is really a kind of a challenging timeline for them, I'm sure. And it says that in that guidance, it should talk about vectors and gene therapies. The public comments that some of the members of Congress who sponsored this legislation made also talked about mRNA technologies, monoclonal antibodies for infectious diseases, things like that. The people who I spoke with about it say that the main purpose of it initially is likely to be in streamlining requirements for manufacturing and for preclinical toxicology. And, the, and one of the things that's really interesting about it, for example, for manufacturing, is that the law specifies that if a technology is designated as a platform technology, 
a company can have multiple applications, multiple drugs, for example, that are approved based on that platform technology. Then if they go in and they get permission from FDA to change that platform technology for one product, they can then apply that change across the whole portfolio of products that rely on that platform technology. Steve, one one other thing I wanted to pick your brain on before we go. There's a bill that's making its way through the House. It seeks to ban the use by federal or state government of quality-adjusted life years, or qualies as they're usually known, to make health coverage or pricing decisions why is this in play now and what's at stake? Could it affect the Inflation Reduction Act? Yes and no. It's really complicated. Why it's in play now really is because it reflects a priority of Kathy McMorris Rogers, or as people in Washington call her CMR, the chairperson of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. For her, this is quite personal. A lot of people believe that qualities are inherently discriminatory to people who have disabilities or who are living with chronic diseases. Kathy McMorris Rogers' son has Down syndrome, and she said at a hearing last week that she believes that the use of qualities could reduce access to medicines for people like him. That seems to be why she's pushing for it now. Could it affect the uh, implementation of the IRA? Maybe. The IRA already prevents Medicare from using any kind of measures that would be discriminatory against people with disabilities or chronic disease, so they can't use qualities. That's already banned for the IRA. But the bill has got some broader language in it. It has an expression, qualities and similar measures. And there's a concern that was expressed at the hearing that that and similar measures is a loophole that could be used to expand the definition of the law to basically prevent HHS and CMS from using any kind of measure that adjusts the value of a drug or a a coverage decision based on on any kind of criteria, not just quality-adjusted life years. At the hearing, it was interesting, Anna Eshoo, who's the ranking Democrat on the Energy and Commerce Committee's Health Subcommittee, spoke out very uh, strongly against the use of qualities. She said that she supported this legislation, but she said she would want to see it narrowed to make sure that it didn't interfere with implementation of the price-setting provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. Kathy McMorris-Rogers said that she's going to work with Democrats on that to address those concerns. I think that, obviously, Kathy McMorris-Rogers and and, um, Republicans If they want to, they could push this through the House unchanged, but it's not going to go anywhere in the Senate if they do that. I think that she's really committed to getting some kind of legislation through, and my guess is they're going to narrow it to make it clear that it wouldn't have an impact on the Inflation Reduction Act in an effort to try to get it through the Senate, probably not as a standalone bill, but as attached to something else. I should also say that there are other programs. There's um, the Medicaid program which is administered by the states. There's the Veterans Administration coverage and pricing decisions. And this uh, legislation, as it's the draft legislation, would affect their ability to use qualities and other kinds of measures 
as well. I spoke with Steve Pearson, the head of ICER. He told me that if the bill were passed as it's written, that it would prevent ICER from continuing its relationship with the Veterans Administration and Medicaid, or I should say it would prevent them from continuing their relationship with ICER. He believes that if it's narrowed to only specify qualities, that uh, the Veterans Administration and state Medicaid programs would continue to be able to consider ICER pricing assessments in their pricing and coverage decisions. All right. Well, one you'll be following to be sure. Thanks for that, Steve, Lawrence, Moan. Coming up this week on the BioCentury show on Thursday, Simone will be in conversation with David Reese. He is the EVP of R&D at Amgen. I suspect they'll be talking omics. Just a hunch. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Thanks for tuning in.